0: Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read briefly from Mark chapter 8. We'll look at verses 27 through 38. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Jesus has some interaction with his disciples that will provide a bit of context for our sermon passage, which is from Proverbs chapters 10 and 11. So we'll turn over in just a moment to Proverbs chapters 10 and 11. But first, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say, Elijah and others, one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Or what will a man give. In exchange for his soul. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. In this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him the son of man. Also will be ashamed when he comes. In the glory of his father. With the holy angels. Amen. For eight chapters. Mark has been showing how Jesus sought to establish his identity in the minds of his disciples. For eight chapters, Mark has traced out story after story that ends with the disciples looking at one another and saying, Who is this? And finally, in Mark chapter 8, the climactic moment comes. Jesus, for the first time, asks the question himself. Who am I? What do the crowd say? What do you say? And Peter makes what we call the great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Having laid that truth, his identity down, Jesus then immediately turns to his work. He's established his person, now he establishes his work. I must carry a cross. Peter's gotten the first half of the equation, I know who you are. Peter has not gotten the second half of the equation, and this is what you've come to do. This is often how we do it in life today. We, like Peter, are prone to separate identity from calling. We think that identity is an independent internal reality. And not a sovereign summons from a holy God to live. A certain way. I hope this rings some bells for you. Our society is dealing with this. For Christ. An identity. Is a precursor to a calling. An identity. Is the prerequisite. For an office. To be the Christ. Means. To be the cross. Carrier. And of course, he's not alone. He turns immediately to his disciples, beginning in verse 34, and says, And what is more to be a Christian is to be a cross-carrier. With this identity comes this responsibility. With this person comes this work. With that in mind, turn back in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 10. We're going to pick up just the last two verses of Proverbs chapter 10, verses 31 and 32. And we're going to read into Proverbs 11 down through verse 9. Proverbs 31, Proverbs 10, verse 31, down through Proverbs 11, verse 9. Solomon is addressing his son, and he is continuing to give him lessons on how, as the future king of Israel, he should govern his nation. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 31, through Proverbs 11, verse 9. Here again, the word of the Lord. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse... Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, And it comes to the wicked instead. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. But through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. Amen and amen. You may not have realized it, but we are on the tail end, I hope it's the end, of one of the largest searches in human history. Thank you, Tim. For over 200 years, Western civilization has been looking for a missing person, the self. After the Reformation, after the Renaissance, philosophers sat around Europe thinking, Who am I? How do I find identity now? John Donne would put it famously, Tis all in pieces, all coherence gone. A more modern philosopher, Ben Folds, would say it this way, We have 300 million little Americas one click away. It's all in pieces. All coherence gone. We're living in a society in which we're struggling to find the self. Who am I? Who am I in relationship to you? Who am I in relationship to the world and to God? And America has decided somewhere along the way that I find myself inside. Disney preaches this with every film. Be yourself. You do you. We have a society that thinks the true self is psychological, therapeutic, philosophical. It's within. But Solomon says such a road leads to barren and lonely places. If we find our identity inside... If we find the true self to be within, then we'll find ourselves awfully alone. And that has been the American experience of the last 20 years, has it not? Solomon says there's another way to see it. There's another way to live in the world, another way to walk, another way to understand who am I and what am I doing here. And that is to find my identity in another. In someone else. Not in me. Solomon argues to his son this morning that the true self, the real self, is found not within, but in Christ. That is, the Apostle Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or again, the Apostle Paul will say that we must die, that we might live. You see, my friends, it is Jesus who saves us from ourselves. It is Jesus who saves us from ourselves and so makes of us a true self. So, beloved, let us in him love one another. Jesus saves us from ourselves, so let us love one another. Notice that loving one another begins, according to verses 31 and 32, with our words. How we speak to one another. This makes sense. The the only way that that which is within me gets out of me is to speak. Have you ever stopped and considered that? Telepathy having not yet been perfected. The only way I can get you to know what I'm thinking and feeling is, is I have to put it into words. There is something very sacred about language, about words. It is the only way for my heart and mind to be bound to yours. Words are the only medium between two beings. In fact, that's why the great mediator between God and man is called in the Scriptures, the Word. So Solomon says to his son, "...the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom." He says, secondly, in verse 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. Solomon says to his son, mouth and lips, as a symbol of words, that organ by which humans bring out their thoughts and feelings. The mouth and the lips of the righteous, that is the words of the righteous, are wise and acceptable. By wise, Solomon in this book, of course, means having the fear and reverence of God. He says in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He says in Ecclesiastes 12, the end of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So whether we are beginning or ending our wisdom, it is beginning and ending in the fear of the Lord. So the righteous speak what is true. The righteous speak what is right, what is wise, what is reverent toward God. There is a parallel between what God says and what the righteous say. Their words are symmetrical. He is wise. But secondly, the words of the righteous are acceptable. By this we could mean acceptable to God. But as the rest of the text flows out, I've come to the decision that Solomon actually means acceptable to others. Solomon's thrust in these verses, the Proverbs that are here together focus on our relationship with one another. That is to say, uh, the mouth of the righteous and the lips of the righteous not only know how to say what is true, they know how to say it in a loving way. They know how to speak the truth in love. This is an important first point. The righteous mouth, the righteous lips, knows how to bring out what is wise in a way that others will accept it, in a way that others will hear it and submit to it. Consider the opposite. The perverse tongue will be cut out, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. Again, there is that focus on the organ of the human that brings out words, the mouth, the tongue. By saying that the mouth of the wicked knows what is perverse, Solomon is saying that it is not symmetrical with what is wise or godly. The wicked bring out what is crooked, what is twisted, what is diverting or moving away from the truth. The wicked bring out lies and slander and gossip, unwholesome speech which is harmful to others. It doesn't bring people together, it drives them apart. This conclusion Solomon draws out in a most gripping and graphic way. The perverse tongue will be cut out. We could take this literally. Perhaps Solomon means that in his Hebrew culture, those who spoke lies, like the thief who lost his hand, would lose their tongue. But we don't find historical examples of that. No, it seems much more likely that Solomon is speaking metaphorically. Such that we see on social media all the time. What do we do with people who say things we don't like? Unfriend, unfollow, unsubscribe, and we cut out their tongues. We remove their words from our lives. This is what happens to the ones who do not speak the truth in love. Notice that words must achieve both ends of the spectrum. The perverse tongue, the one that either speaks lies or speaks unlovingly, is removed from the ear of the audience. It must be true, but it also must be love. It must be truth in love. This is a principle we've seen in our relationships constantly. If you are in the habit of lying, you soon find that no one listens to you. If you likewise are in the habit of telling the truth in an unkind and ungracious way, you likewise find that people stop listening to you. Ears belong to the mouth of the righteous, whose words are true and loving. This is what Solomon says healthy relationships need. But he knows that the issue goes a little deeper for us humans. It's not just the mouth. This isn't the only organ that creates an issue. He knows that the words that we use on one another, true and loving or not, are rooted deeper in the heart. This is what Jesus was teaching in the text Tim read earlier, that what we say comes out of the heart. And so in verse 1, Solomon digs a little deeper into the human experience and says, furthermore, Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. This needs a little unpacking for our culture. Most of us only use a scale for one thing, and we don't like to admit it. We don't like to see it. Most of us use the scale for one thing, to collect dust in the bathroom. We avoid it like the plague. But in an agrarian culture where you spend your whole life hacking away at the dirt under the boiling sun, praying for rain, only to gather up every scrap of food you've managed to bring to fruition. Sorry for the pun. And you carry it off into the village to be weighed, so that you can buy cloth for your kids' clothes, so that you can buy leather for your sandals, so that you can buy a new animal for next year's farming. A just scale and weight is essential. What Solomon here is speaking of is the reality that when we are in the habit of devaluing work and wealth, we are actually devaluing one another. What is happening here, and this is why it is an abomination to the Lord, is that when we say of one another, your work is not truly valuable, we are saying you are not truly valuable. And the Lord hates this. He has made humans in his own image, that they should not be slaves to one another, shackled to the judgments and the evaluations of one another. Rather, he delights when humans are valued for what they are, A creation in his image and likeness having value. Ultimately, the greatest tragedy in American poverty is not simply that the middle class and upper class evangelicals lack generosity. It's that we lack all the gifts and talents the poor are not giving us. They have something to offer our community and we need them. They are not the only ones in our world with need. They were made in the image of God. In like manner, my friends, something that comes a little closer to home in the congregational experience. Have you thanked your deacon today? What about Tim and Tom? What about your Sabbath school teachers? What about your wife? Have you said with just evaluation, you are valuable to me? Do you praise one another? Do you thank one another? Have you a just weight by which this congregation can say, you have made some important work and we cherish it? Have we affection and affirmation That sits heavy on the heart of a fellow believer and says, here I am cherished. Here I am loved and rejoiced in. Or are we walking around with the silence that is tantamount to dishonest scales? I know I need your work, but I'll never tell you that. I will hide the truth of how much I'm dependent on your love and your care. Solomon says these things, words that are true and loving, work that is valued and treasured and understood and cherished, these are the things that bring humans together. And it is our selfishness that is destroying both our work and our words. So Solomon gives us three things then that must be done in order to turn this around. Solomon addresses three parts of our lives by which we can grow up into that person who speaks the truth in love, who praises and rejoices in one another's work, who justly evaluates the labors around us. First, notice in verse 2, Solomon says, "...when pride comes, then comes shame. But when the humble is what? But the humble is wise." Then in verse 3, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Solomon sets up again this idea that it is the heart from which these things come. If I am silent in my praise of others' work, if I am unloving or untruthful in my words, it is because my heart is crooked. In verse 3, the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. The parallel is in verse 32, the mouth of the wicked is perverse. Not only is the perverse tongue cut out, that is, alienated or separated from others, that perverse tongue has come from a mouth that knows perversion. But that perverse tongue inside the perverse mouth is actually coming from the perversity of the unfaithful. There is something in the character That is producing these untruthful and unloving words. The unfaithful person is perverse within. At the core. A new self is needed. They will destroy themselves and others. Living out what Jesus calls the bad fruit of their own heart. This perversity has a name. And in verse 2 it is called pride. Now, we live in a culture that has generally come to celebrate pride. And I know that when I use those words, you immediately think of parades with lots of color. But I'm actually referring to the stuff we deal with, where we take pride in our work, where we take pride in our church, where we take pride in one another. And there is something valuable about our misuse of that word. We should enjoy the works of our hands, Ecclesiastes. We should enjoy the fellowship of the saints and the well-being of the church. But pride isn't quite the word we're looking for when we say we take pride. Solomon says it is something not to be taken. For when we take pride, we take shame. We take hurt relationships in which we judge one another harshly and speak unlovingly or untruthfully. Instead, the contrast Solomon gives his son is that the humble are wise. That those who are low in heart. Notice in verse 3, this incredible. I, I was really struck by this language. The humble are wise. Verse 3, the integrity of the upright. In the Hebrew, the word humble literally means low to the ground, bowed down. The lowly. Are upright. Can you guys see that? You can see that Hebrew visual? If you want to be growing straight and tall, like the cedars of Lebanon and the sequoias of California, if you want to be a towering peak of righteousness, get small. Get lowly in heart. In fact, the most righteous man who ever lived The one who achieved and fulfilled all righteousness once declared in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Tim read it earlier. I am lowly in heart. My friends, the chief reason we speak the truth without love, the chief reason we speak lies, the chief reason we don't treasure one another but judge one another harshly is we have arrogant, conceited, selfish hearts. And we need new ones. Humble ones. Low hearts that love one another. That will go upright and guide us because this heart is low. We find it in Christ. He himself was humble and lowly in heart. And when we are in him, we have likewise this humble heart. But this humble heart also needs to grow up. Into the way we live. Notice then in verses 4 and 7 riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Verse 7 When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. Solomon creates between these two verses this contrast a day of wrath, which is death. Verse 7 A perishing, a perishing. Solomon warns us that whatever we do with our life's work, all our lives end in the same manner. A day of wrath. A day of death. Everything is going that direction. It's the terminal point. It's the period at the end of our life sentence. We have a day of wrath and of death. We will perish. But notice the difference. Riches will not profit in that day. Riches will not amount to anything. Instead, in verse 7... The wicked man's expectation perishes with him. The unfaithful's, I'm sorry, verse 7, the unjust hope perishes with him. The one whose longing is for riches, for earthly well-being, the one whose hope and expectation is to accumulate to the self all that is great and good in this world, will end up unfulfilled, unsatisfied succumbing to the day of wrath and falling into death. We could actually shorten this. This is obviously extending it to the end of the sentence, but we could shorten it to our own expectations. Every one of us who enters into a relationship for what we can get out of it is going to end up grossly disappointed in that relationship. There is no marriage, no children, no friendship, No job that can possibly satisfy that adulterous appetite with which we long to use others to our own ends. The self will never be satisfied with the riches of this world. With the resources of one another, we'll never say enough. The sinful soul hungers and thirsts and greed and covetousness consume it. But in verse 4 we have a contrast. Righteousness delivers from death. It is righteousness that turns back death. Both ultimately in Christ upon our deathbed, but also more proximally in our relationships in this world. What is it that's going to bring out truthful, loving words from my mouth? What is it that's going to put into me charitable judgment of God? one another and of the work around me what is it that's going to humble my heart righteousness righteousness a right understanding of who i am in christ that his righteousness is mine and that i cannot fulfill righteousness what humbles me looking at jesus and seeing how far short of his glory i come What humbles this heart and brings forth truth and love knowing how much He has truly loved me and given me His righteousness. This knowledge of righteousness, this practice of righteousness, both of which are only in Christ, are the secret to these loving and truthful words, this humble heart, this charitable judgment. But then thirdly, In verses 5 and 6, Solomon speaks again of this righteousness as directing their way, as delivering them. Verse 5 and 6 The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. The wicked and the unfaithful are put in parallel in verses 5 and 6 as being fallen or caught by their own wickedness, by their own lust. Solomon is pressing his point to the climax. If you go your own way, if you do you, you will bring about destruction. Your own wickedness is how you fall. Your own lust is how you get caught. If you live for the internal appetites and desires... If you feed and nourish the self only, you will fall. You will be caught. We are living in a society that is seeking the self within, not knowing that it is producing the epidemic of suicide, not only personally but socially, that we are now practicing. When you live for yourself, you find life is not worth living because the self isn't worth worshipping. We cannot live for ourselves. We have to be saved from ourselves. Their own wickedness causes them to fall. Their own lust causes them to be caught. And instead it is the righteousness of the blameless that makes smooth or straight his way. That directs his way. It is this righteousness we have been given in Christ that teaches us how to walk. You want to know how to love one another? Look at how Christ loved you. It's one of my favorite little turns of phrase to use in counseling when I'm sitting with someone and they're frustrated and I want to give them hope and I say, don't worry, don't be discouraged. You only have to love this person as much as Jesus loved you. It's as far as you have to go and no farther. Friends, it is out of the riches of his righteousness that we live righteously. It is out of the abundance of his love that we love one another. And so the righteousness of the upright will deliver them. These relationships in which we inhabit in this life are reconciled, made healthy and made whole when we put Jesus in the center. When his righteousness is the riches out of which we live. So then finally, Solomon, pulling these three threads together into one person, points us in verses 8 and 9 to his conclusion. The righteous is delivered from trouble. Of course, we can take this again in that ultimate sense. The righteous is delivered from trouble. By the righteousness of Christ, I am delivered from the trouble of the wrath of God against my sin. That is certainly true. It is also true, my friends, that we are delivered from much trouble in this life with one another when we speak the truth in love and when we judge each other's work charitably and graciously. The righteousness that we practice in Christ toward each other is a righteousness that keeps us from a whole lot of trouble. Our lives and our relationships and our communities thrive on the pulsing and surging of love between one another, within one another. Likewise, or rather contrastingly, the wicked instead invite it. They bring about trouble. Wherever the wicked go, their untruthful, unloving, uncharitable judgments and words bring about trouble and harm. They destroy communities and relationships. The hypocrite with his mouth, there we go, back to the beginning, 31 and 32, The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. This is Solomon's pinnacle. I can't. The words aren't coming to my brain. His pinnacle proverb is top. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. Because within his heart there is no love. Because within his works there is no righteousness. And so within his mouth there is neither truth nor love. And he destroys his neighbors. His words are like weapons. They wound and they hurt and they destroy. But notice this final line. But through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. Notice the change. Throughout all these verses, Solomon has said to his son, if we were to see it this way, Be righteous, be righteous. If you are righteous in what you say, truthful and loving. If you are righteous in how you judge, fair and charitable. If you are righteous in your heart, being humble and lowly. If you are righteous in how you treat others, using wealth for their well-being and not your own. If you are righteous, you will be delivered from death. But that's not what he says in the final line. Through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. By pushing righteous into the subject of the verb and knowledge into the preposition, Solomon is saying that there is something intimate and relational about this righteousness. It does not come to us by muscling up. It does not come to us by greater exertion or effort. It comes to us through our receptivity. Through faith. It is a righteousness received by what we know. Actually, let me say that a little better. It is a righteousness received by who we know. Through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we love one another. Through the knowledge of God who has loved us and made Christ wisdom for us, we love one another. My childhood church, of which I was immensely fond, had little pens in the pews. You know, the ones that had like the church name and phone number on it. I don't remember any of them working, at least not for writing. Like, it, I could never get ink out of those things. They also had the church logo on the side of it where heart meets heart. I never could get anything out of that pen, ink-wise. But boy, did that pen get a whole lot of writing into my heart. The goal of a Christian community is to get to where heart meets heart. The Apostle Paul will say it this way, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the one mind we should all have, the one heart we should all have, He has loved me. Let me love you. Dear friends, Jesus saves us from ourselves. In Him, let's love one another. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice before you. You are good to us. Thank you for these wise words in which Solomon instructed his son long ago. That his son might reign in righteousness. And Father, we know and confess that Rehoboam was not that son. We also, Father, in humility confess that we are more like Rehoboam than we are like Jesus. Forgive us that we have not followed the wisdom of Solomon. Forgive us that we have not humbled ourselves. That we have not spoken the truth in love. That we have not judged one another kindly. Forgive us, Father, that we have harmed our relationships and indeed our own lives with our selfishness. But Father, thank you. Thank you for the good news today that these things can be forgiven, that these things can be healed and restored and reconciled in Christ. And we pray, Father, that as he has now been declared to us, you would this afternoon and this evening lift him up and draw us to him. That as we leave this place and go about our lives, we might yet love him more and be like him. For this we ask in his name. Amen.